Quantlayer is a software consultancy based in Brooklyn, New York. All opinions expressed by podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Quantlayer. The information presented should not be construed as investment advice. Guests may maintain positions in assets mentioned in the podcast. listening to our podcast. On this episode, we speak with Barney Mannerings, founder of Vega Protocol, which is a blockchain product initially focused on derivatives markets and letting their users write their own complex financial contracts. Barney understands the space really well, and it was a pleasure talking to him about what he's building at Vega. Broadly, we discuss the DeFi space, or what he calls the parallel financial system, and why he thinks the space is important. He explains how Vega in many ways augments and replaces some exchanges and how it serves as an integration layer with other protocols. We finish up with some areas of tech that Barney is excited about outside of crypto too. Before we get into the episode, a word from our sponsor, us. As our opening intro explains, QuantLayer is a software consultancy. We build software applications for our clients, help teams with new product development, and work with them on tech strategy. While the types of projects we've worked on in the past have been in fintech, healthcare, and education verticals, we specialize in helping teams with complex problems like real-time features, blockchain, complex and interactive UIs, parallelism, think data aggregation and pipelining, search and alerts. If any of these more ambitious features sound interesting to you, I would love to chat with you. I'm at Vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M, as in Mary, at quantlayer.com. Enjoy the episode. You've got Quantlayer here, Vikram speaking. I'm joined by Barney Mannerings from Vega Protocol. Thanks for joining us today, Barney. Uh, thanks for having me, Vikram. Yeah, why don't we start off a little bit about your background, kind of how you got interested in the space and uh, you know what you got you into it. Yeah, certainly. Uh, so I'm a computer scientist by training, um, and I spent most of my career building trading systems, uh, you know, front office trading systems for investment banks, risk systems, and um, and working with with large exchanges on their core trading uh, systems and algorithms. And so that got me. I was super interested in the, in the the financial side of things, the trading space, the the performance, and the complex technical problems there. But um, you know, as I as I went through that career, I, I also noticed some of the things that were not super super fair in that world and some of the things that um, were very much held behind you know gatekeepers and and the control of a very small number of institutions and, and a lot of a lot of money going those places but also really stifling on innovation and so mm-hmm. you know, when bitcoin turned up and I started mining bitcoin in 2013 and then ethereum which I sort of got got involved with and started building things on as well I started to see the opportunity to do something that was much more open and, and potentially a bit disruptive and uh, and that eventually led to me uh, and Ramsey my co-founder creating Vega beginning of last year and uh, and here we are got it so did vega its kind of roots you know change over time to what you're kind of focused on today like how did you think about the space initially and then you know how vega fit in and how that changed over time yeah it's a really good question because i think um you know something that's happened over the time we've been building vega is the emergence of this thing called DeFi and the DeFi <laughs> space and the DeFi stack and, and and lots of other interesting and exciting projects there for us, it was it's a little bit different because we actually started kind of before that became a thing, and we we used to call it the parallel financial system. And we had this sort of model in our minds of how you could recreate 
things that are needed in the world and, and that are used by companies and individuals to, to do business, to reduce risk, to transfer risk, to make speculation, make investments, and how you could do a lot of those things using decentralized technology, blockchain technology, and you could do them on a global scale cheaply and pseudonymously. So we always had this thing in mind. And you know, over time, DeFi has come along, but actually... You know, one of the things we've done is sort of kept this kind of guiding north star of, of this this vision in our mind has stayed relatively stable, and you know, DeFi has kind of grown around it, and, and some in some ways shaped the technical implementation, the how. You know, how are we doing this? How we're we building Vega? That's been quite shaped by what's happened in DeFi. We want to be aligned with that and part of that ecosystem, and you're properly playing well and interoperating with all those those protocols. But um, on the other hand, the thing that we see is the this sort of parallel financial system, the thing that DeFi is working towards and, and cryptocurrencies in general, that's remained pretty static and constant. And we've been we're quite happy to see that although we've tweaked, tweaked lots of things about our protocol, the, the sort of guiding principles have stayed the same. Got it. That's really interesting about this term that you had, parallel financial system. I have always thought like DeFi is a kind of, you know, it's a tough term for kind of new players to get their heads around immediately, especially if you're trying to build a parallel financial system and you want a new set of players. Nomenclature and language, of course, is important. Like decentralized, the term itself is not super clear. It's often confused with distributed. So I really like this kind of like parallel financial system way uh, that you're putting it. Right. And, and I think one of the things that's really important for me is you know, some of the applications of this technology are fundamentally alien new things, and we're going to have to learn what they mean and what they look like and what they do. But actually, a lot of this parallel financial system is not about doing something that's so super crazy. It's more like saying, hey, these 5% of the world's companies control all the trading in futures or whatever, um, but actually we'd like everyone to be able to have, get, have a go. Or you know, the markets are limited in this way, but we'd like to open that up and we'd like to make it global and we'd like to make it easier for people to innovate, much in the same way as the internet did for, you know, things like publishing and journalism and, and things like that. And so I think parallel financial system really for me captures it because it's saying we're kind of taking what's already there and we're producing a new upgraded, faster, better and more open version rather than doing something scary and like you say, new and with these sort of these terms and connotations that might be quite difficult to grasp. Yep. So I guess the current kind of parallel financial system that's being built I think the most common kind of things that we hear about, if you have even just a kind of general interest in the space or things like stable coins, um, lending platforms, I think those are the two most common. Of course, there's a whole host of other things. Would you say that's fair? Like what other kinds of areas within the space you think are particularly interesting? Yeah, I and mean, I think it's, you know, one of the things that, that this kind of going, going to happen really is that the the first things that get done are the things that are easiest to do and the most obvious. And you know, they're easiest from a, actually, it's a lot easier to do something on Ethereum uh, where you've got a, a blockchain and a network already than it is to do something like perhaps like we're doing, where we're actually trying to build a, a side chain that runs itself on proof of stake and has a little bit more complexity. So you know, that's a harder challenge to solve. And so the easier challenges are the ones that you can already fit into a, a smart contract on Ethereum. And you know, Ethereum has limitations in terms of how much processing power you can really access on Ethereum because of the cost of gas and because of the fact it's one sort of global single threaded computer. So I think it's quite 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 expected to see these things coming first because they are the slightly easier things to build with the tools we have. But also if you think of the people who are coming to use them, you know, the people who are holding crypto assets like uh, Ethereum itself or Ether or stablecoins like DAI or, or tokens from other projects, you know, lending protocols and protocols like ZeroX that connect liquidity and and things like that are going to be the protocols that people have the most use for right now with that sort of holding those assets. And you know, once you start to get more real businesses doing business on, on uh, Ethereum and other blockchain-based networks, and once you start to find businesses and applications built around those, you'll start to see some of the other use cases, like the ones we're building, some of the other sort of financial use cases will become more prominent. But I think you know, for now, we're, we're still, people are building things a lot of time for what, what's already here. 
Yeah, that's a really good point because it's kind of like the low-hanging fruit. Fundamentally, we kind of understand what lending is. We understand the value if, of a stablecoin if it existed, you know, in terms of limiting volatility and allowing for e-commerce payments and things like that. So it, it's cool that you're kind of thinking about this way, this in terms of, you know, how this is going to evolve. would love to kind of get your general thoughts on, you know, building on Ethereum versus building on Bitcoin. You made a comment about one of the issues with ETH is that, you know, gas costs, for example, and you know, that might change over time as we move to ETH 2.0 or there's other kinds of ways that load is, is uh, brought down. But what, do you, what are your general thoughts? You, you mentioned that you're thinking about a side chain. We'd love to understand that whole kind of uh, bit a little better. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things, and, and this actually goes back to the reason, you know, we were talking about the sort of parallel financial system. We're talking about the fact that what's being built now is, is being built for what people have, you know, the, the tokens they hold, the ETH they hold. And, and that's one way to look at it. You know, actually people are building things to solve those problems with the tokens and, and the ETH they have. But we actually, when we started Vega, made a very conscious choice not to build technology for the sake of it, but to try and find use cases that where we actually could deploy this. And so ETH, Bitcoin, all of these other systems, even Vega, they're tools for a job. And one of the risk of building, if you build on ETH and you go, well, what can I do with ETH right now? Yeah. If you've got some people who don't care about ETH, then if the thing you built doesn't really help them or doesn't help them as well as something else, as well as something else that someone else has built does, then they just won't use the thing you built, you know, because they don't care about ETH. And it's, you know, same with the database, right? If I build my website on a funky new database, but that means it's functionally worse than your website that's built on Oracle. Right. The most of the world's going to go use the, well, the website built on Oracle. And I think there's a danger in this space of people to build technology before they know what it's used for. And a lot of the interesting technology and infrastructure was, you know, came out of a need. Someone built something and then everyone follows that thing and says, actually, I want to build something like that. And so right. you've got to build this infrastructure and technology to do that. And so we didn't want to be, be trapped by that. And I think, you know, building on ETH, there's some advantages. There's a big ecosystem of developers. There's some disadvantages. There's the performance. There's some unknowns around ETH too. But fundamentally, you've got to go and ask yourself, you know, actually, ETH is a great place to launch tokens. If I was going to tokenize, you know, tokenize a commodity, tokenize some asset, tokenize non-fungibles on a house, whatever it is. If I was going to do that right now, ETH to me would be the best tool. It would be the tool I'd pick up and use because I think it's got lots of you know, primitives in terms of ERC-20 and, and its sub, sub successor standards that make tokenization easy. But for other problems like you know, trading and, and you know, DeFi or parallel financial systems, Ethereum doesn't have such a good set of tools. And in fact, it, it's quite difficult to do that well on Ethereum. You know, things like the fact that you can pay gas in Ethereum and the more you pay the more likely and the earlier your, your transaction is going to be scheduled versus others. That's like paid for front running. Right, right. That's a problem. Most, most, most regulators don't like front running to the extent that it's illegal to do. So having that built in as a feature to Ethereum makes it really unsuited for a, something that accepts orders for trading. And so you know, really, I think of it as the tools. Like, you know, There's a lot of things we all want to achieve with this stuff we're building, but each of these things, ETH, BTC, they're all tools that we can use. You know, BTC is a better store of value than ETH, potentially. ETH is a better smart contracts platform, better tokenization platform. But even for trading, our view is actually you want to build a blockchain optimized for trading. And you know, another project that's done that is Filecoin. You know, Filecoin and IPFS are building a protocol and a, down to the consensus layer for doing file storage because, hey, look how expensive it is to store data on Ethereum or Bitcoin. It's, it's, it's so expensive, it's pointless. And so you want to solve that use case effectively. You've got to find the right tool and you may have to build that tool. And that, that's the same as we're doing with Vega. Yep. And so this front-running problem is very interesting. How would you go about solving that problem, I guess? It's difficult to do on ETH, so is that the purpose of the sidechain? It's difficult to do in general. Okay. I mean, you know, let's not forget if, if you, I mean, and, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't try, but, you know, if you look at the book Flash Boys by Michael Lewis, that's a book about how 
a government regulation effectively created the situation where they had a national best bid and offer price that was calculated and published, but it was calculated and published slow, slow enough that smart people could calculate it quicker and could front run the entire market effectively and get ahead of almost everyone. Um, yeah, so that this happened in the real financial system. And so you avoid front running by being persistent, by being very aware, by, by iterating and by paying attention and by carefully designing things. You know, we have, we have a number of ideas, you know, where you can, Relax that you can reduce the power of leaders in a, in a leader protocol, like in you know, a like Tendermint, you can actually say, well, you give the leader less power to actually decide what's in a block rather than just to be the one sort of coordinating the block. You can also do things like a commit and reveal scheme where you effectively encrypt the orders coming in until such time as the block is finalized and only then are they decrypted. And that means that the person who is scheduling the block can't make decisions based on the order about what to include. And there are a bunch of other things you can do. And, and this is all kind of, you know, some of, some of it's known and well understood research and some of it's quite fundamental blockchain research. Mm-hmm. And you know, we have a chap on our team, Klaus Kasawi, who's a very well-known and a prominent researcher who's been at this stuff for a long time. And he's specifically looking at the problem of how do you design or how do you tailor a consensus algorithm and a distributed network for trading and for you know, all of the trade-offs and all of the safety guarantees that you need to make for a trading platform versus a more general purpose platform. Gotcha. would love to hear more about Vega. What is Vega and what problem is it solving? And would love to get into that. Yeah, absolutely. So the way I think of Vega is I think of it as being the natural blockchain for you, know, you could call it derivatives, you call it margin trades, you could call it financial products with a lifetime. Um, it's, it's, it's any of those really. And, and they all have this, that, that property, which is that they have a, a lifetime. You know, If you're just talking about tokens and exchanging them, that's an, you can do an atomic swap. There is no, there's no residual lifetime. Everything happens in an instant and then yep. it's done. And, you know, and I see you know, Bitcoin, as I said earlier, I think is the, probably the natural blockchain to store value. It's the, the place you would want to trust to store value even in the event of nuclear war, societal breakdown, whatever. I think that's, it's, it's robust in that way and it's designed for that. And, it's, and then you look at something like Ethereum and certainly you know, Ethereum stands out for tokenization, as I said earlier, and for some other use cases, potentially governance contracts and things like that. And it's really great because it's got that sort of that stored global state. It's got a, a proof of work and a high level, reasonably high level of potential decentralization and potentially a reasonable level of performance with, with ETH 2.0. And I think you know what we're doing is we're saying, well, actually, you've got all these digital assets now. You've got you know, Bitcoin at the base. You've got these tokens beneath that, above that. And then on top of that, what you need to have functional global markets is you need derivatives and you need people to be able to hedge the risk and exposure they have to those assets because of the natural business they do. You need people to be able to hedge the risk and exposure they take because they provide services like providing liquidity, like being a market maker, actually. Derivatives help provide liquidity in that way. And you also need people to be able to speculate appropriately based on where they think the future's going. Because if you don't have that, then prices can get too high and actually derivatives prevent bubbles. And you know, the former CFTC chairman mentioned how he they had allowed futures in Bitcoin because they thought it would help arrest the kind of bubbly price growth of Bitcoin. And I think you know, there's some evidence that that actually worked. And so we think the derivatives are absolutely necessary in this future financial world of tokenization in cryptocurrencies. And what we want to do is build something that is a baseline layer, a piece of infrastructure that allows for those derivatives to be created and traded in a decentralized, distributed, trust-minimizing way in the same way that Bitcoin does for, you know, for money and, and Ethereum does for those other things. And we do that by providing effectively what you might call a decentralized central counterparty. So people can place their money with the Vega network, and then that money can be used as margin to take trades out. And those trades can be on a potentially a wide variety of derivative products. You know, we're starting off with Vega being kind of hard-coded futures and then options, but the actual plan is to build a 
you could call it a smart contract language, you'd like to call it kind of a smart product or a product definition language, which allows people to describe a product in terms of its cash flows. So effectively, you separate like, the underlyings, you know, whether it's a, a, you know, a future on the price of Bitcoin or the price of oil or the weather, you separate that from the underlying features of the product, whether it's an option or a future or a swap. You can define that product by defining how it creates cash flows and, and whether it has optionality, whether it has you know, payments from one place to another and, and, and that kind of that kind of feature, and you can then describe that product, put it live on Vega, and create a market for people to buy and sell that on Vega in a, in a decentralized, trust-minimized way. So I guess stepping back, because I would love to get more into this kind of traditional versus crypto market and where Vega plays there. In the traditional world, like airlines hedge with oil futures, gold miners hedge with gold futures, and so on. Is that something Bitcoin miners do now? And if they do, you know, how would they go about doing it? And if they don't, how would you see them go about doing it? I think the answer is they try to. You know, there's a lot of OTC markets out there, and whenever I talk to OTC desks and, and, and miners and traders, they all they all have desire for more transparency and more liquidity and more global products. But there are also people doing some quite innovative things. You know, there are people thinking about hash rate futures, for instance. Something we've been thinking about and been talking with people about is the idea of mining swaps. So actually, you could say, well, I want to swap the returns on some unit of mining on the Bitcoin network for the returns on the some unit of, mine, unit of mining on the Ethereum network, so that. You know, if I've got a bunch of GPUs mining Ethereum and I think that that's going to underperform or I want to hedge against the risk it underperforms, maybe I can actually swap that cash flow out for the cash flow from mining Bitcoin and do that as a swap product without actually having to touch my mining hardware. And so people are starting to think about these things, but you know, at the moment it's not very liquid and transparent. And and also there's, there are so many different types of things to do because there are so many cryptocurrencies, there are so many tokens, there are so many angles you can take. And I think you know we look to the the permissionless innovation that cryptocurrency and blockchain allows, and say actually the advantage that we all have is that we will have the ability to create the right products for the industry and build them. Yep. So I guess as I understand it, I think users of Vega at some point will be able to create their own derivatives. Are there kind of like out of the box derivatives that Vega supports currently? Yeah. So the, so the way it works is effectively it's, it's a little bit like putting a smart contract live on Ethereum, but because it's such a specialized space, it's actually a lot simpler in that yep. um, if you just want to create a futures contract, then you probably just need to provide a few basic details about the size of the contract and you know the reference or you know, the contract addresses or whatever for the oracle will be used to settle that future. If it's an options contract, similarly, if it's a multi-leg swap, you're going to have a little bit more to do, but actually those kind of things can already be kind of, you know, those can be included as sort of batteries included, predefined product templates. And then those are all part of a larger set of primitives that Vega will provide for sort of more fundamental things like payments and optionality that can be composed together in a basically an infinite number of ways. And so, you know, to start with, people will be able to deploy simple futures and options. But over time, they will actually be able to compose those primitives together to create product contracts and deploy them on Vega that, that describe almost any product. But certainly, you know, for the basic product types that, that you see in the markets today in the centralized markets, those should be, you know, there'll be predefined templates for those. And if you had to take a, you know, a guess, kind of a gander, what are those types of derivatives? We talked earlier about like, you know, low-hanging fruit. What are the early kind of derivatives you expect users to start creating first? This is a really interesting question. And and I actually know, I think I have less of an idea about this now than I thought I had two months ago. Because okay. <laughs> two months ago, when we, you know, when we were still closing out the seed round and hadn't spoken to as many people, I had some ideas what the top things were. And now... I've been to a few a couple of conferences. I've been out to see some of our investors in, in South Korea with Hashed, and I've been over to San Francisco this week, just ahead of San Francisco Blockchain Week. And every time I talk to someone, they have a new idea. And you know, and a market maker came up to me in South Korea with a proposal. We want to put this market live on Vega. We want it to be the first market on Vega. And it's absolutely nothing like anything I expected would have been the first market. They're like, we just think we can create a 
you know, CFDs on, on retail stocks in, in Korea or something, right? And every time I speak to someone, they have a new idea. And, and if they're a trader or a market maker, they're often quite excited about getting that idea live. And so where before I sort of had, a, this is the low-hanging fruit, I think what we're finding as our community grows is that everyone has lots of ideas and that, you know, our job is to provide the tools and the education and the information and the connections to facilitate them experimenting and playing and doing things. And so actually, when I think about the low-hanging fruit in terms of what happens first, I don't think it's actually... You know, what's got the most liquidity? I think it's actually what's the most exciting and interesting to the community. What do people want to like galvanize around together and play with? And it might actually be quite a, you know, it could be a silly use case. It could be something like, you know, futures on crypto kitties or something, just because it might be something that in a, in an early test environment or in a very first alpha where we have lots of limits on what people can do on the network, it might be the kind of thing that people think is really fun to explore as a community and build together. So uh, I really don't know right now, but we're getting tons and tons of ideas and engagement from the community. And I think that's great. You know, this idea of kind of the test environment is really interesting. Yeah, it sounds silly in terms of who needs features on CryptoKitties. But to your point, like it does solve a use case. It kind of sets a backbone or, you know, blueprint for other kinds of derivatives products. What's like the path from going from test to full-blown like CFD on retail stocks or something like that? Like, what do you think are the steps that need to happen there? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, the, the, it's a, one of them is a sort of a, a comfort step. It's like you, know, how, you, you see the the extreme example on one end is the DAO and the fact that they thought they were building a relatively small, uh, simple mm-hmm. contract and two hundred million dollars worth of people decided they wanted in, and then then everyone lost their money. And then on the right. other side, the other end of the extreme caution is kind of something like the Lightning Network, where actually you know they were in beta for ages, and even when they were in beta, a few people broke the rules and deployed it on real Bitcoin anyway. And then even now they're out of beta is like a $300 worth of Bitcoin limit on on what you can spend. And so, you know, they're being very, very cautious. And I think, you know, the biggest thing for us on that path is when we look at something as complex as Vega and something that we're doing, how do we all feel confident as a community that we're not taking too giant a leap? But also how do we, how do you make those moves? And I think it's a very, it's a very nuanced and difficult thing to do. And and something where I think we'll allow the community to an extent to guide us. We'll see what people are wanting to do. Obviously, our own internal testing and also auditing all of our smart contracts and stuff like that. And, and we'll, do, we'll just see where we get to. But I think, you know, the path has to be iterative. It has to start with start with the simple things, the crypto kitties, the fun stuff, get people interested, get more eyeballs on it. And as, as we develop confidence in it as a community and as a, and as a team, we sort of remove some of the constraints and, and open it up and, and start to make it more and more and more like real markets. Yep. You know, I'm kind of a a visual person. And one thing that might help me kind of visualize the space a little better is uh, understand how Vega plays in. Like if we have a map of, say, exchanges, market makers, you know, hedge funds, miners, trying to understand like the interoperability of Vega with all the other techs that each of these other entities use would love to kind of understand that better yeah absolutely so so on that map really you know vega is is a replacement if you like for some of the exchanges is that's the the most basic thing but then you know obviously that means that there's a network that's being run by people who are running nodes and mining things so actually miners will play or you know certainly validator operators or whatever they they call themselves will play a role of of running nodes on vega and and running the infrastructure and and being the people who actually run that network because it's not a network that we will run we're we're just writing software right so that the the miners will play that role and then in the DeFi side of that community in the in the integration between all of these points you know we're a sort of separate sidechain network but we're connected via bridge contracts for instance to ethereum and so that means an ethereum-based protocol will be able to say i'm going to send collateralize a, a 
a position with 100 ETH, and then I'm going to issue a you know an NFT for that position onto the Ethereum network, where I'm going to tokenize it and sell the tokens as shares in that position, or you know, almost anything you can imagine. So, you know, Vega wants to be and will be very interoperable with that community, but fundamentally, it sits at the point at the point of a, as an exchange, but a decentralized one. So, you know, that that's where it sits in the map. Got it. That's super helpful. And as far as being ETH based, you know, with ETH moving to 2.0, at some point it's kind of up in the air, I think. How would that kind of affect your roadmap kind of long term? It probably depends how ETH 2.0 affects ETH's roadmap long term. Okay. Um, right. <laughs> and then what I mean by that is, you know, if ETH remains the place where people want to tokenize assets, then ETH will remain one of the most sensible places to settle contracts in Vega. Because if, if right now, if you want to take a, if you wanted to build a market on Vega that was, you know, futures in oil and you wanted the oil to be priced in dollars, you obviously wouldn't want to use it ETH because now you've got this crazy FX risk um, right. versus the dollar. And so you've got to hedge that somewhere and it just gets difficult. So you'd be better off using a stable coin that's dollar backed, you know, whether it's a, you know, something like a tether type token or, a, you know, a trust, trust token USD. TSD or, or one of those, or whether it's a stablecoin like Dai that's algorithmic, you want to use something like that. And so, so ETH is a good place right now. If, if that maintains the place and, and the tokenization that continues happens on ETH, I think it's going to be a very, very key part of the future of Vega. Um, and, and if ETH 2.0 is successful and continues that, then probably more and more DeFi projects will be built on ETH, especially as the performance improves. Yep. Um, but equally, you know, you've got people like um, you know RSK on the Bitcoin side building really, really interesting things with. Bitcoin anchored sidechain smart contract platforms, things like that as well. And so does ETH keep that lead or does Bitcoin rise up over over the long term? You know, as many of the Bitcoin maximists believe actually it's a slow and steady wins the race. And and does does the tokenization start to move and, and go back towards Bitcoin? We've already been there. We had counterparty doing, you know, sort of Bitcoin-based tokens way, way back when. So do we end up going back towards that direction over time? Um, and does ETH lose out? And, and you know, luckily for Vega being a sidechain, it can actually be a sidechain to multiple change. So we're already in the late stages of thinking about and just ahead of not quite yet in the early stages of doing anything, but in the late stages of thinking about how the Bitcoin integration will look and even potential other integrations, you know, like whatever you say about Ripple and, and XRP, they do quite a serious amount of you know, cross-border transactions and, and payments through that. And there might there's quite some demand actually for derivatives on some of those payments. And so again, you know, does the Ripple integration make sense? And so I think, you know, for us for the long term, it's, it's where is the money, where are the assets, where is the trading, where are the institutions, and where do they want to be? Because the derivatives that we put out there or that, that exist on the network that we put out there are only any good to the extent that they're settled in and tradable in, in assets that the people who want to trade them have. So it's really down to those networks, and, and we're very much a sort of blockchain agnostic. Let's wait and see. Let's see where the trading volume is, let's see where the assets are, and let's provide really high-quality derivative settlement effectively as a layer to, to any of those blockchains. Got it. I think that is very, very helpful. On the uh, kind of like building a crypto business side, UX and UI considerations, like how did you work through all those? I imagine, did you have some group of, you know, kind of beta customers and product people that work together to kind of come up with this stuff? But we'd love to understand that kind of process. Yeah, I mean, and, and, that, and part of that comes back to our ethos, you know, and one of the things we've sort of always said is that um, you know, we come from trading backgrounds and market backgrounds, and 
trading is a really serious job. Like, you know, yep. people, some people do it, some people day trade, some people do it for a bit of fun, but the people who do the real volume, they do nothing but trade and they spend tens and hundreds of thousands of pounds on, you know, computer setups and systems with the you know, super fast processes for running pricing calculations with 16 monitors so they can see all the data at once and with connections to things like Bloomberg. So they have literally, you know, they can watch in real time where every oil tanker on earth is and how much oil is in it just so they can have a little bit more information for that trade. And so it's a serious job. And one of the things that I sort of, always sort of just made me groan was looking at the a lot of the platforms that got built for trading on and with crypto, whether they're centralized or not, uh, really were not built for those people who do trading as a job. You know, and and that to me was a huge missed opportunity because you know, going back, we're trying to build a parallel financial system, but we want it to be able to compete with what's already there and we want it to be able to stand on its own two feet. So it's got to take that seriously. And so you know, we we started you know, from day one with this out with this idea that the people who do trading as a job have got to feel at home with Vega and have got to feel like they're not limited by what they have. And obviously that means giving them complete control of everything through APIs. It means giving them really rich and fast APIs for accessing data. But it also means designing a, a front-end platform that whilst we want it to be easy to use and accessible and new users to be able to pick it up, it's actually you know, it's designed so that once you actually get into it, it's got depth to it and it's got features and functionality that professional traders want. And you know, we're lucky to have a UX designer who's worked on multiple trading platforms before, have ex-traders and trading system designers on our team. And also, thanks to our you know, great set of investors in our seed round, we've got amazing connections now into really serious institutions that are dipping their toe in the water in, in, in Bitcoin and, and crypto trading, and also our own personal networks. We're spending a lot of time sort of promoting and, and taking what we've got to those people and saying, you know, how do we make sure that this works for you guys so that actually, yes, you can connect your systems up to it, but when we give you a laptop that's you know running the front end we've built, that you don't just look at it and go, great, this is gross. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I come from a trading background as well. I used to trade uh, equity options for a living. And a lot of the products that I use, you know, I used Bloomberg at the time. Uh, Realtick was the actual uh, uh, trading platform that, that I used. UX was not a major consideration. Like the main thing was speed of data and whatnot, not necessarily but how I think things look. But I think that's UX, right? I mean, the, the, the design, you know, Bloomberg, no one's probably, some people aren't going to give any awards for design, although I happen to kind of like it. Um, <laughs> but it kind of looks cool. Yeah. Um, but the thing you can do is, you know, if you want to have three monitors with different feeds set up and a graph of everything, and then you suddenly, you're like, I want to compare this with that. And I also want to bring up this. And I want to, you know, the ability to do that super, super fast and to know that once you know the key combinations, once you know the short codes, the go codes and all of that, you know, where do I go for lunch? Dine, go, right? You know, the ability to do that on Bloomberg is is UX. Yep. And it's a type of UX that's designed for someone who's going to spend all day every day staring at that screen and wants to optimize for speed and optimize for their ability to do their job. You know, it's, it's, it's more like Final Cut Pro or Photoshop than it is like a consumer application. But it is a form of UX. And, you know, I think that's something we've learned is like, you know, we want it to look a bit, maybe a bit prettier than Bloomberg, but we also want to capture that speed and the immediacy and the customizability as well. You know, I want someone to be able to open you can you can define customizable workspaces in Vega. You can open a different one on every monitor. You can switch between them instantly. You can access every bit of data for a market with a you know by typing a keyboard shortcut in one one character and then start typing the name of the market. You can open every bit of data. You can drag one of those views onto your thing. You can save it. Like you know, I want people to feel that customizability and the ability to open up a laptop or a workstation at home and feel like they've got everything they need right there ready for them uh, every time they come come to use it. Yep. With respect to kind of uh, upcoming product roadmap, you know, how are things looking between now and next year? Like, what are the main sets of things you want to get out, and where does testnet mainnet set? Uh, so we have this kind of like you know the first the the, the big milestone for us that's the kind of like the one 
that we're really focused on right now is the first sort of private test net. And it's this idea that we've got enough stuff ready that we can do meaningful, useful end-to-end trades on a test net, um, even if you don't have lots of the governance functionalities or market making, whatever else. Like, And that's probably, you know, sort of around a month away and okay. maybe slightly less, maybe slightly more. And as soon as we get that out, we want to start you know, really sort of getting that out there, you're posting about it, videos with the community, getting people using it and getting feedback as soon as we can, because that feedback needs to run all the way through to, to mainnet and beyond. And then then there's a bunch of features we've still got to build before we can put something live with real trading and real money, you know, whether it's for market safety, whether it's governance, et cetera. That continues, you know, through the end of this year and into into next year, probably sometime into Q2. And then the best guess we have right now is that when we talk about those sort of toy, uh, slightly toy networks where people might be trading, um, you know, very small values or, you know, crypto kitties or something a bit fun, yep. um, that we might get something into mainnet in H2 next year and start betting it down there. And then that growth trajectory, that how do you open it up and turn it into something real with the real use cases and with the big boys coming and making their markets is is sort of a little bit anybody's guess at this point. Depends how all that goes, but you know, starting at the, with those uh, foundations that we build in the second half of next year. Gotcha. And as far as regulatory concerns go, what are the key areas that you're paying attention to and focused on? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's super important in this area. And I think there's a lot of... Um, slightly irresponsible abdication yeah. um, <laughs> that goes on in this space where people kind of go, I, I don't like being regulated, I don't think I should be, or I don't like the current regulatory regime or the way that society as a whole is governed right now. So I'm going to build a system that allows, makes it possible to evade that. And I, that's fine. I, I'm, I'm all for privacy and tr- anonymity, and, and I, I believe we should build those tools. But on the other hand, we all live in a society with each other, and it doesn't really matter what happens to the way it's run, which libertarians or whoever else gets their way. Fundamentally, the people who you live with are going to have opinions about what you can can and can't do. And if they find out that you're doing something they don't like, then they're going to get upset. And particularly if you're a business owner, right? If you're a business owner, you're going to be paying taxes, you're going to be audited, and you're going to have accountants. And so at some point, you're going to have to explain to those people what you've been doing. So to just say, oh, it's Zcash, I I don't, I can't, I can avoid telling you, I can make it so you can't know, so therefore you don't know, isn't going to work with accountants and auditors and tax people. So ultimately, you have to be able to answer those questions and you have to be able to answer them convincingly. So you know, one of the things we think is that when you, but by building a, a system that allows people to trade in a more peer-to-peer basis rather than having a central, central authority that can you know, ban people and KYC them and all of that, by building a system like that, I think we also have a responsibility to build tools that help people to be compliant. Right. So you know, the system itself isn't going to be able to know every, every rule of every jurisdiction, every regulation, but we're looking at tools where effectively we can say that you can take your, your cryptographic identity and you can get it signed by a trusted party in, in say, let's say the UK, right? The FCA or someone, the FCA trust can sign your identity and say, yep, yeah, this person is allowed to trade on these, this, these kind of markets. And you can effectively collect these signatures on your pseudonymous identities. And you can present them to the Vega network as well. And so you can tell everyone on the network, this is an identity, you don't know who I am, but you do know that these different other entities have attested that I'm regulated in these jurisdictions and in these markets. Yep. And what we can then do is we can say, well, instead of having an order book that just lets everyone trade with everyone willy-nilly, I can now start putting constraints on my orders. And I can say, well, this is my regulatory status, and these are, these are the kinds of people I'm allowed to trade with. Yep. And our matching engine, instead of just matching on price, can match on price and actually what is compliant. And so you have potentially tens of thousands of participants with hundreds of thousands of orders on one order book, but the matching engine is smart enough to say, I'm only, make, I'm only matching trades between people who are actually compliant to trade. And it's them telling me that they're compliant. It's them telling me their own constraints and their own regulatory status. 
And on the output side of that, they get an auditable, cryptographically provable report that's you know, based on data that's in the blockchain and can be audited that proves that everyone has the attestations that, attestations that they said they did, they traded with, and that they didn't trade with anyone they shouldn't, even though those people are still pseudonymous. And so you know, we think it's cool to do that, partly because we really think that you have to provide those tools to get mainstream businesses and, and trading houses actually in, in size. But we also think it's cool because it allows you to create a global pool of liquidity, which can route liquidity around as far as possible between different entities that may not be able to directly trade with each other, but may have intermediaries who are actually able to do that. And so you create a much, much deeper global pool of liquidity by allowing a kind of instant routing between all these different jurisdictions and regulatory requirements. Yep. And, but you really just leave that up to the participants because as a decentralized network, there's really no way that you can do anything else. Yep. Awesome. I guess one quick thing, it's kind of in a different direction, but this is something we've been asking a lot of guests and we just get a lot of interesting answers. Would love to hear from you. So outside of crypto and blockchain, you know, I think there's a lot of concerns around surveillance technology and uh, AI and ML being used negatively. What are some interesting technologies and trends you're kind of optimistic about and things that we should be paying attention to? Yeah, it's a really good good question. What I'm optimistic about is, I guess, two things probably. The first one is the the general spread of, of cryptographically powered technology. You know, the the cypherpunk dream sort of allowing everyone to have the level of anonymity and privacy and in, in their interactions, in their transactions, in their businesses as that they want. Then they can take more or less of that depending on who they are. But the ability for that to be widespread and easy to use. You know, things like Signal versus PGP. So I'm pretty optimistic about that. I think it's happening, and I think it's happening in a way that's somewhat unstoppable. Yep. The other thing I'm very optimistic about is is that technology in particular, as Andreessen Horowitz say, software is eating the world. And as everything that was hardware gets replaced by software, it also gets you know, infinitely cheaper. And that means that people have access to the tools that used to be only held by governments and, and large companies. And, and that means that you know, the ability of people to acquire access and understand and use and deploy technology to, to their own benefit against these these misuses yep. is getting better, not just in not just in the in the sort of crypto way, but across the board. Whether it's drones, whether it's computational power in your pocket, um, whether it's camera technology, uh, I think that's really interesting. And it's certainly, you know, you look at Elon Musk and, and OpenAI and the fact that 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 is founded on the idea that you can um, you should develop this technology and give it to people so that it, everyone has access to it and it augments us all rather than being sort of siloed away in data centers of a few huge companies that use it to kind of extract value from us all. Awesome. Well, uh, how can people get in touch? Well, I'm at Barnaby, which is Barnaby with two E's at the end on Twitter. So, Hey, everyone. You've got Vikram here again. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you enjoyed it, please drop us a rating on iTunes. If you want to get in touch, drop me a line at Vikram at quantlayer.com. That's V-I-K-R-A-M at Q-U-A-N-T-L-A-Y-E-R.com. Thanks. Thank you.